Today's episode is sponsored by Privacy.com, the totally free service that lets you buy anything online without having to give out your real credit card number. Instead, you create virtual credit card numbers which are linked to your bank account that you can use anywhere. And to protect you against card theft even further, each card is locked to a merchant, so you're totally protected against fraud and unauthorized use. There are countless different advantages to using a service like this to pay your bills and buy things online, so take a few minutes to find out more, get 100% free and unlimited access, and a $5 credit just for trying by going to privacy.com slash best, and you can find that link in the show notes. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about both the Boycott Divest Sanctions Movement in Support of Palestinian Liberation, or BDS for short, and the backlash response to it. Clips today come from The Katie Helper Show, Democracy Now!, The Real News, Counterspin, Speak Out with Tim Wise, Deconstructed, and The Majority Report. Talk a little bit about the book. So our book is an anthology of essays by artists, activists, and scholars, and it started with a series of seminars organized at the Vera List Center for Art and Politics at the New School, um, and that was with my co-editors, Laura Reykovich, who's the president of the Queens Museum, and Karen Quoney, who directs the Vera List Center. And it's important to say it talks about, you know, examples of boycotts, both historic and contemporary, and not only... Um, uh, South Africa and Israel, which we've mostly been discussing, um, to focus on especially cultural boycotts and boycott campaigns organized by artists. And there's a long history of artists organizing against racism, sexism, war, for labor rights, for human rights, you know, boycotting cultural institutions. But we focus especially on the last few years, um, where I think because of a number of factors, but um, especially the the really inspiring uprisings from Cairo to New York in 2011, the rise of social media and online organizing, and also the fact that contemporary art discourse has begun to you know center conversations about politics, the number of artist-led boycotts has has taken off, um, and this also you know goes in the face of people who say why only focus. On Israel, because many of the same artists who support BDS are also supporting many other boycotts and forms of kind of collective withdrawal. So there's an artist collective called Gulf Labor that has prevented the Guggenheim Museum from collecting their own works um, in in protest of the new branch it's building in Abu Dhabi. And that you know that building is is it's being built by migrant workers who are forced to work off exorbitant debts uh, for for wages much lower than those they were promised, and often after having their passports stolen and facing violent repression for for even organizing against these conditions. So artists have also boycotted a number of biennials, the Sydney Biennial, because its chairman was profiting from Australia's notorious offshore migrant detention centers. Manifesta, which was held in St. Petersburg um, in 2014, shortly after Russia passed a set of anti-LGBT laws, and the Sao Paulo Biennial is another one that's for receiving funding from Israel. But to just say, you know, this is really um, a widespread phenomenon um, happening, you know, uh, among artists and cultural workers right now. And BDS is is one campaign for justice among many. And um, BDS is really also actively pursuing lines of solidarity with 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 other oppressed people around the world. Um, so our our book is really an attempt to uh, answer. Some of these tactical questions, historic questions, um, questions about the meaning of censorship, dissent, uh, and also of transnational activism very broadly and cultural activism broadly. Um, 
Uh, and uh, yeah, we, we bring those together through, through some of these debates around BDS in South Africa, but, but also many other campaigns. Do you think that part of the opposition to it is that it has the potential to be so successful? I do think so. And I think that the opposition has really grown in the last five years or so as it has you know, made a lot of inroads in terms of academic associations choosing to embrace the academic boycott. Um, churches and uh, religious um, religious organizations that are choosing to divest from companies that invest in Israel's occupation. Um, and, you know, generally the tide is turning against Israel as it's embraced farther and farther right policies. Um, you know, for example, there was a Pew Research poll last year that showed the Democrats who identify as liberal sympathize um, more with Palestine than with Israel. And that's for the first time ever. Um, so Israel knows that it is being perceived increasingly as simply an occupying force that uses disproportionate violence uh, whenever it faces any kind of um, opposition or resistance from Palestinians. And facing this, they, they want to end the image of, uh, you know, international solidarity for uh, nonviolent resistance and instead, you know, project an image of intransigent anti-Semitism and, uh, you know, the threat of violence and uh, delegitimization of Israel. So can you talk a little bit about how BDS actually works and functions? The first thing that um, should be emphasized is that BDS targets institutions and not individuals. Um, so it is not, you know, targeting um an Israeli academic saying you cannot um, have a conversation with this professor because he or she is Israeli. Rather, in terms of the cultural and academic boycott, when there are events that are explicitly sponsored by Israel or institutions that receive Israeli government funding, Palestinians are asking the international community to not engage with them. Um, to give a concrete example, this means that, for example, uh, Naomi Klein will publish a book of hers in Hebrew, but will not uh, publish it on a, a, a publisher a press that receives state funding from Israel. Or um, in terms of uh, musicians, there's recently been the call to, uh, and it did not work out, to pressure Radiohead not to play Tel Aviv. Um, which was similar to the campaign to stop musicians from playing Sun City, the apartheid resort um, uh, in South Africa. That's just the cultural and academic boycott, I should say, which is the focus of uh, our book, Assuming Boycott, and also of, of my own work. But it, it, it's also about basically uh, stopping people from investing in companies that um, actively support the occupation, whether they're making, you know, um, technologies that are used in the in the border wall um, or it's that they give technology to the Israeli army. And um, those are typically enacted at an institutional level, getting, you know, pension funds to remove these these companies from uh, from what they invest in, for example. And then there's also, you know, theoretically sanctions as, as a threat against Israel. But of course, we're far from that. Um, today, the United States gives uh, $3.8 billion of military aid to Israel every year, far from sanctioning it for its violations of international law.
wanted to read more from the letter from the Birmingham Holocaust Education Center to the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. They said, We don't suggest Israel should be immune from criticism, but BDS ignores gross human rights transgressions by other countries around the world and focuses solely on Israel, the world's only Jewish state. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. said, When people criticize Zionists, they mean Jews. You are talking anti-Semitism, they said, quoting Dr. King. Can you respond to this, Angela Davis? Well, first of all, as I pointed out, BDS emerged from Palestinian civil society, uh, uh, and its purpose is precisely to focus on um, Israel, just as the boycott against South African apartheid was focused on uh, the South African apartheid state. Uh, so the first um, um, criticism they propose, I don't think, is valid at all. Um, Dr. King may have made uh, the, that uh, uh, statement indicating that peop when people uh, criticize Zionists, they are criticizing Jews uh, uh, at a particular moment in history. But I am certain that if he were alive today, he would uh, he would point out uh, that um, that justice is indivisible. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, he argued that uh, for the indivisibility of justice, justice anywhere, he wrote, is an assault to justice everywhere. So I'm quite certain uh, that, uh, that, that he would not remain silent on the question of uh, the uh, occupation, the continued occupation of Palestine, uh, the segregation that recalls uh, the segregation uh, uh, in South Africa and the segregation in the southern states during the pre-civil rights uh, era. Uh, um, and I'm certain that he would identify with Palestinian activists who have taken up uh, strategies developed by the U.S. civil rights movement. Um, you know, for example, uh, the Palestinian freedom riders uh, uh, who were inspired by the freedom riders of the civil rights era uh, in attempting to protest the segregation of um, highways, uh, of thoroughfares, uh, uh, that lead from one settlement to another settlement, and from which Palestinians are barred. Uh, uh, yeah, the trip that I made to Palestine in 2011 with um, a delegation of uh, women of color and indigenous uh, feminists uh, was revelatory uh, in a way that I had never expected. Uh, I, I thought that I was aware of the conditions in occupied Palestine, but when I visited Hebron and actually saw signs that barred uh, Palestinian automobiles uh, and, and, and Palestinian pedestrians from certain uh, streets, my response was, Segregation in Alabama uh, did not uh, did not bar black people from the thoroughfares. Uh, so in many ways, it, it 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 seemed to me to be even worse than the segregation of my childhood. Uh, I think the world needs to speak out against these conditions. 
Well, let me ask you about the proposed Combating BDS Act, which was included in the first Senate bill of this new session. The legislation aimed to prevent opposition to the Israeli government by allowing state and local governments to sanction any U.S. companies which are engaged in a boycott against Israel. The bill failed to pass earlier this week amidst the government shutdown. Newly sworn in Palestinian-American Congress member Rashida Tlaib of Michigan criticized the bill on Democracy Now! this week. I agree with Senator Sanders and ACLU and others that see this not as a—see this as an anti-speech, uh, anti-First Amendment uh, bill. Uh, the fact that we have our senators that right now could be voting on opening up our government, they have the bills in their hands, are voting on this, that's distracting us from what is our focus, which is the American people. And I can tell you, you know, looking at um, this push among even just the states, saying that, you know, a you, you will not employ someone that doesn't sign some sort of allegiance to say that they will not boycott another country. It is literally at the core right there is literally an attack on our Constitution, on our one of the most critical rights that we have in our country is freedom of speech. I cannot imagine our country not having the right to economic boycott. Think about, uh, you know, Alabama, Montgomery. Think about all, Montgomery, Alabama, and all of the around the country, the civil rights movement. That's Rashida Tlaib, the first uh, Palestinian-American woman uh, in Congress, one of two Muslim women, along with Ilhan Omar, part of the most diverse Congress that has been voted in uh, in the history of the United States, more than 100 women serving in the new uh, 116th Congress of the United States. Your response, Professor Davis? Well, I am excited to see the new Congress, uh, and of course, uh, um, I'm very happy that uh, the um, Senate bill, Senate Bill 1, uh, did not pass. However, I think it should be uh, pointed out that um, uh, this is uh, not going to be the last we hear about this act to uh, combat uh, BDS. Uh, it reminds me of the McCarthy era. Uh, the um, effort to require people to, in effect, sign loyalty oaths that they re ref that they will not engage in uh, the boycott of the state of of, of Israel. I'm trying to imagine uh, uh, how that might have played out uh, during the era of the struggle against apartheid in South Africa, if. Uh, if people in as many states have have, have passed these acts uh, would have been required to agree not to advocate or engage in or participate in um, the uh, boycott of, of South Africa this is this is absolutely unconstitutional uh, and it, uh, it 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 harks back to a period of our history which uh, many of us thought we had um, surpassed, uh, but it also indicates uh, uh, how important it is to engage in the kinds of um, um, conversations and struggles that will enlighten people as to the implications of such measures.
As the campaign to boycott Israel for Palestinian rights is growing internationally, even pro-Israel lobby groups are secretly admitting on the inside that the boycott tactic is effective. A new confidential report from Creative Community for Peace, CCFP, which is a Los Angeles-based pro-Israel lobby organization that targets the entertainment and art industry, a leaked report from this group reveals that the cultural boycott against Israel has an even deeper impact than was previously recognized. The CCFP was recently exposed by the progressive organization Jewish Voice for Peace to be a front organization for Stand With Us. Stand With Us is a staunchly right-wing pro-Israel lobby group that is in fact partially funded by the Israeli Ministry of Strategic Affairs. So it receives money from the Israeli government. And CCFP, its goal is to attack and organize smear campaigns against artists who participate in the cultural boycott of Israel. So joining us to talk about what this means for the international BDS, Boycott, Divestment, and Sanction movement against Israel, is Ali Abunima. Ali is co-founder of the award-winning online publication, The Electronic Intifada, and he's the author of One Country and the Battle for Justice in Palestine. Thanks for joining us, Ali. Thank you, Ben. So Ali, can you walk us through who CCFP is and specifically what its links are to Stand With Us These are right-wing pro-Israel lobby organizations. Can you explain to the viewers uh, what the cultural boycott is and why these groups are so aggressive against the cultural boycott? Uh, CCFP, Creative Communities for Peace, poses as a sort of a non-profit peace group that uh, tries to counter the cultural boycott of Israel by telling artists who have been approached by Palestine rights campaigners and asked not to go to Israel. Uh, Then CCFP steps in and tries to tell them, you know, uh, music is uh, the universal language and dialogue is better than boycotts. And uh, so it tries to give this soft, uh, you know, lovey-dovey image that, uh, that it's a peace group and that it just wants everyone to come together in peace and love. The reality, uh, as you've mentioned, is that uh, it's a front for Stand With Us. Now, Stand With Us is a far-right pro-Israel group that a few years ago, uh, the uh, prime minister's office in Israel, the office of Benjamin Netanyahu, decided to fund directly in order to do propaganda for Israel. Now, it's not clear if that funding uh, ever went through. It was widely reported that the funding was awarded, but then Stand With Us subsequently denied ever receiving the funding. But nonetheless, Stand With Us is part and parcel of the network of propaganda organizations that work closely with uh, the Israeli government to spread an anti-Palestinian message and try to sabotage and thwart the nonviolent boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. Now, let's look at this specific report, this report that was a confidential report from CCFP and has been cited by Jewish Voice for Peace. It really clearly spells out the organization's politics. Uh, one of the things that the report does is condemn intersectionality, which is the idea that multiple systems of oppression are linked together. And specifically, the report is very critical of the fact that there are a lot of civil rights organizations and black American organizations and feminist groups in the United States that 
are increasingly in solidarity with Palestine. In fact, uh, CCFP describes the growing black Palestine solidarity and the growing feminist support for Palestine as a, quote, troubling and growing trend. So it's very clear that this is a right-wing organization. So can you talk about why this report was confidential and what CCFP has to hide? Right. Well, there's a couple of really important things there that need to be kind of teased out. One is the the observation, which is not unique to CCFP. Other Israel lobby groups, and in fact, the Israeli government, uh, have, have said very clearly time and again that they view growing black solidarity with Palestine to be a real threat to their efforts to uh, shore up support for Israel in the United States. Why? Because black support for Palestine is rooted in such historic struggles or identification uh, with the Palestinian struggle based on the black struggle for liberation from uh, American state racism, apartheid, and Jim Crow, and of course, the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa. So Israel fears that black support not only widens the base of support for Palestinians, but gives the Palestinian cause much more a progressive credibility. And that's exactly what the CCFP report is saying. Uh, but uh, you'll remember, uh, Ben, that the recently leaked Al Jazeera film uh, on the Israel lobby, in, in that film, you hear an Israeli official saying the same thing, that Black Lives Matter is a threat. Now, where this really concerns CCFP is that, because their, their intent on fighting cultural boycott is that they see many black cultural figures really being in the forefront of speaking out on Palestinian uh, rights. And, and that's artists in the hip-hop community. Uh, it is also not just in, in uh, music, but also uh, in sports. We've seen uh, NFL players uh, refusing to go on propaganda junkets to Israel or speaking out for Palestinians. So they fear that black support for Palestine combined with, uh, you know, the willingness of black cultural figures to speak out is really something very dangerous for Israel's efforts to whitewash its apartheid regime. Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Amy Arrett founded the company in 2013, naming it after her daughter with a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. As is so often the case, the status quo options either left much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. You'll look like you just came from the salon, but without the huge time commitment. Experience beautiful, multi-dimensional hair color made in Italy delivered to your door on your schedule for under 25 bucks. Hundreds of thousands of women have already tried and loved Madison Reed, so go ahead and give it a try for yourself. You can start by finding your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of the Left listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com and use promo code LEFT. 
The New York Times doesn't say exactly what's in the provision Senate Republicans added to legislation on Middle East security policy, only that it, quote, aims to curtail support for the boycott, divest, and sanctions, or BDS movement, which seeks to pressure Israel into ending the occupation of the West Bank, close quote. The January 28th piece says a good deal, though, in its positive framing, Senate advances pro-Israel bill, says the headline, and the lead describes rules, quote, affirming the right of local and state governments to break ties with companies that boycott or divest from Israel, close quote. It is a beltway story about GOP efforts to seed divisions among Democrats and tells readers that Republicans are becoming more brash in their accusations, accusations for which it proceeds to make space including that of a North Dakota senator who, we're told, mused on Twitter that Democratic opposition to the anti-BDS measure, quote, may be nothing more than a thinly veiled attempt to hide the rising anti-Semitism in their own party, close quote. The piece positions Marco Rubio, who pushed for the provision as representing one side of the issue, citing his statement that the BDS movement, quote, isn't about freedom and equality, it's about destroying Israel, close quote. But the Times seems not to see how its own use of the terms pro-Israel and anti-BDS as synonyms rather suggests the same view, all of which encourages one to try looking at things under a different light. We're joined now by Josh Rubner. He's policy director at the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights and author of, most recently, Israel, Democracy or Apartheid State, from Olive Branch Press. He joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Counterspin, Josh Rubner. Thanks so much for having me. Like so much coverage, that New York Times piece really takes as its topic political maneuvering. And in that context, the comeback, if you will, to what the story calls Republican efforts to paint some Democrats as extremist and even anti-Semitic, the comeback is to have a quote from Senator Chris Murphy telling Rubio, you know it isn't true that a significant number of Senate Dems support BDS, um, which again, as text, tells us that not supporting BDS means not being anti-Semitic. So it's partly down to the political football approach, but the effect is the same. There is no positive explication or defense of the BDS movement to be found in a news account ostensibly about that movement. So with that off my chest, uh, we spoke with you two years ago, July, about an Israel anti-boycott act. Is this that again? What should we know about this uh, Senate iteration? No, this is a different bill that was also introduced in the previous Congress and the one before that, and it's called the Combating BDS Act. And the reason why Marco Rubio has been unsuccessful for the past four years in trying to enact this bill into law is because it's patently unconstitutional. It's a bill that encourages states to penalize individuals for their political and moral and religious beliefs on boycotting for Palestinian rights by denying those people governmental contracts. And we've had two federal district judges already overturn these laws in Kansas and Arizona, thanks to lawsuits brought by the ACLU. And there are three pending lawsuits challenging similar laws in Texas and Maryland as well. 
And the reason why Senator Rubio is attaching this very controversial bill to this broader bill is because he knows he can't pass it as a standalone bill because of its unconstitutionality. So he's trying to hide it within a broader bill. So who is the who is this aimed at? Is it governments? Is it businesses? Who would be affected by this? This is a bill that attempts to encourage states to coerce individuals and companies to tow a particular line regarding Israel and the Palestinians and to punish individuals and companies that support Palestinian rights through nonviolent efforts to engage in campaigns of boycott, divestment, and sanctions. And it's a patently unconstitutional call because what it's doing is it's trying to leverage the power of government to punish people for having a certain political viewpoint. And it should be noted that the Supreme Court of the United States has upheld the engaging in political boycotts, whether the government agrees with them or not, is a constitutionally protected right under the First Amendment. Well, it sounds as though legislatively this may have no legs, but it's clearly about something more than that. I have to return to this troubling sentence also from the New York Times. Quote, with Britain's Labour Party embracing anti-Israel policies and other left-wing parties in Europe courting Muslim immigrant voters, Jews in the United States have eyed the toehold that Palestinian rights activists have secured in the Democratic Party with trepidation. Close quote. There's a lot happening there. You could engage what strikes you. But what bums me out is the crude zero-sum presentation of Muslims against Jews, against Palestinians. It seems like politics without people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's presumptuous of the New York Times to assume a certain political viewpoint because of someone's religious affiliation. And I would go even further to say that that's even bigoted to consider that a particular group would hold a political ideology just based on their identity. It's very clear that the movement for Palestinian rights in the United States is comprised of people of all faiths, including people of the Jewish religion, who support boycott, divestment, and sanctions to achieve Palestinian rights. So it's not at all an accurate statement by the New York Times, but what is accurate is the fact that there is more and more support within the Democratic Party, both at the base of the Democratic Party, and now we're starting to see in Congress itself for a new approach to the issue of Israel and the Palestinians. We now have elected members of Congress who not only defend our constitutional right to engage in boycotts for Palestinian rights, but in the case of some freshman members of Congress, like Representative Rashida Tlaib and Representative Ilhan Omar, they actually support boycotts for Palestinian rights. And they're introducing a whole new paradigm for thinking about this issue in the halls of Congress. And this is clearly worrying those who are protecting the status quo of Israeli military occupation and separate and unequal policies toward the Palestinians. Well, yes, just to to further that, reporting does kind of suggest that we see these anti-BDS moves as responsive to the fact that 
while there is still an ongoing acknowledgement that anti-Semitism, of course, itself is very real and indeed rising, that there seems to be increased understanding that criticism of the policies and practices of the Israeli government is not in itself anti-Semitic, those last being the words of New York Times columnist Michelle Alexander in her recent piece, Time to Break the Silence on Palestine. Having worked around these concerns for years now, do you feel something changing not only in Congress, but just culturally, if you would, uh, um, around these issues? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's never been a more yawning divide between the parties on this issue with the Republican Party and its members portraying itself as the party of Israel. And it makes a lot of sense when you think about it, because the policies that are being enacted by the government of Israel mirror the exact ethno-nationalism white supremacy that the Republican Party is pushing out. And that is clearly the uh, ideology and policy of the Trump administration. Whereas the Democratic Party, which is becoming more diverse, more responsive to social justice concerns and campaigns, is naturally gravitating toward Palestinian rights as part and parcel of a broader progressive agenda. So there are huge changes underfoot. I think we're going to see this play out not only in the current Congress, but especially in the upcoming presidential campaign for 2020, where the issue of Israel and the Palestinians dividing Democrats from Republicans has already become a theme in the media. on Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez as we turn now to Glenn Greenwald, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, one of the founding editors of The Intercept. His latest piece headlined, A Texas Elementary School Speech Pathologist Refused to Sign a Pro-Israel Oath, Now Mandatory in Many States, So She Lost Her Job. Um, Glenn, why don't you talk about, you know, exposing this story nationally? Um, but we're talking about the law in Texas. In fact, more than half the states in the United States have a contract like she was being forced to sign if she wanted to keep her job as a speech pathologist. So there are 26 states in the U.S. that have some version of this Texas law. They're not all as severe as the one in Texas, though many of them are. Others have various kinds of restrictions on people who boycott Israel, prohibiting the expenditure of any funds to invest in companies, for example, or in pension funds that have companies that invest, that advocate a boycott of Israel. They all have one thing in common, which is that they impose limitations on the opportunities and abilities of private citizens or private companies that support or participate in the boycott of Israel. I think the most extreme example, Amy, that actually stuns me the most is Andrew Cuomo in New York who in 2016 issued an executive order because he couldn't get it passed through the legislature, barring New York state agencies from doing business with companies that boycott Israel. And he actually ordered them to um, compile a public list that would be published on a website of any companies that were found to be boycotting Israel. Yes, I can. Well, Glenn, um, if you could talk further about how public do you have to be to be in violation of the law. Um, 
if you say to a friend you're not going to buy a product um, from Israel um, because you don't want to support the occupation by the Israeli state of the occupied territories, um, you have to be a, a card-carrying member, if they have cards, of BDS, the Boycott Divestment Sanctions Movement. What would lead you—how um, uh, would a law like Texas's—when um, would they say you have violated the law? So I'm not sure if, if you were able to hear that last answer at the end of it. I was talking about the you. law imposed—yeah, by Andrew Cuomo in New York, um, where he ordered the agencies to use public information to compile a list of companies who said they were boycotting. In the case of Texas, they're really just relying on the word of the contractor. So Bahia or others could just lie and say, I promise not to boycott Israel, even though they really are. Presumably, you could get someone fired if you find out that they really are supporting the boycott of Israel. Um, and the point I was making about New York and other states is that at the same time that, for example, Governor Cuomo ordered a boycott or barred a boycott of Israel, two months earlier, he ordered his state employees to boycott North Carolina in protest of an anti-LGBT law that that state had adopted. So in Andrew Cuomo's worldview and the worldview of Texas, you're allowed to boycott other American states and harm American businesses and be employed. You're just not allowed to harm or boycott this one foreign country, Israel. You can boycott Canada or Russia or anybody else. It's just special protection for Israel that not even American businesses enjoy. That's what makes it so shocking. We're seeing a shift in the Jewish community that we have not seen since in my lifetime. You know, when I was a Jewish kid growing up in California, there were really no options. If you identified as Jewish, you identified as pro-Israel. Right. That was exactly. was out there. Right. Right. It was the same for you, I think, right. growing up. Exactly. Right? Exactly. We didn't have choices like that. I was All a member of Pabonim as a kid. So, yes, yes. Right. right exactly. Right. I was a counselor at Jewish youth group and Jewish summer <laughs> right. camp and all that stuff. But what's different now for these young people growing up in the Jewish community, it turns out that being Jewish is distinct from and separate from and not at all bound up with being a supporter of Israel and particularly a supporter of the ongoing Israeli oppression of Palestinians. So what we see is organizations on the right, the left and the center in the Jewish community that we never had before. You still have APAC and ADL and all the others on the on the right, but they're mostly older people now. They have money, they have influence and they have a lot of old people. Then you have in the center, you have an organization like J Street, which has been very important in breaking taboos about what happens on the Hill. Mm -hmm. And on the left, you have Jewish Voice for Peace in the lead, one of the, the, the most uh, rapidly growing organizations within the Jewish community. I'm honored to serve on the board of JVP. And we now have several hundred thousand online supporters, chapters in 40 countries, 15 or 16,000 paid members. It's just growing leaps and bounds. And JVP specifically supports BDS. So we also have the case, which has brought to attention what's happening on the state level, of Bahia Amawi in Austin, who is a speech right. pathologist, a Palestinian-American, born in Germany, who after nine years of working with children, uh, is, is not can't work with them anymore yeah. after September because she refused to sign. Now the document to teach says you cannot participate 
in boycotts of Israel. I mean, right. it's an extraordinary thing. This the language that's going on in many of the states is actually even more harsh than the national language. Uh, it's it's going against individual contractors like like uh, uh, Ms. Amawi, as, as we just heard. And we're hearing it about the threats against any organizations, any business. So what the message is essentially is that Palestinians are attacked when they use violence uh, to to fight for their liberation. And now they're being told it will also be illegal to use nonviolence. The essence of BDS and the reason it's such an important um, movement around the world is that it's calling for a nonviolent economic and academic and cultural pressure on Israel, nonviolent pressure to end three specific arenas of international law violations that Israel has carried out. And it says, we will boycott Israel. We will call for sanctions against Israel. We will call for divestment of corporations from Israel as long as it is continuing those violations. There's nothing violent about it. And yet it's being treated now as a crime. So in the case of of a Palestinian-American woman in Texas, who's been a very successful speech pathologist for nine years now, She's being told, well, you can't work for the city anymore. You can't work for the city of Austin, Texas, because our contracts are ruled by a state law that says you must sign on to an agreement that you are not now and never will in the future support a boycott of Israel. It sounds like the language of McCarthyism. Are you now or have you ever been Mm -hmm. a supporter of the Communist Party? Now it's, are you now, have you ever been, and will you ever be in the future a supporter of nonviolent boycotts against Israeli violations of international law? That's an outrage. Last week, uh, a good friend and friend of the show, Mark Lamont Hill, who was on this program uh, several, uh, a couple months back as one of my guests, was fired from his contributorship position at CNN because of some comments that he made last week uh, at the United Nations Commission on the Exercise of the Inalienable Rights of the Palestinian People. There was an event. He spoke at that event. Mark is someone who, among the issues he speaks about, and we didn't talk about this on the program when I had him on as a guest, but one of the things that Mark uh, is very, very close to his heart is the issue of uh, the Palestinian liberation struggle and freedom struggle. And he has been to uh, to Israel-Palestine many times. He has uh, been working on a, on a documentary, is my understanding, also a book, I think, about the Palestinian struggle. And so he was giving uh, a talk, and in that talk, he happened to, in addition to denouncing Israel's mistreatment of the Palestinians, both in Gaza and sort of in general, he used a very particular phrase at the very end of the speech, which created a firestorm. He called for a free Palestine, quote, from the river to the sea. And this set off all types of red flags for certain people and a firestorm of criticism. Ultimately, CNN removed him because of this. His comment about a free Palestine from the river to the sea created this firestorm because according to some, that is a line that Hamas has used uh, and therefore is a terrorist uh, a slogan or whatever. Um, of course, the phrase from the river to the sea is also a phrase that Zionists have used uh, to describe a unified 
unified Israel as a Jewish state. Uh, the land in between the river and the sea in this case is, depending on how you want to term it, Israel and or Palestine and or Israel slash Palestine. Uh, Israel has used that phraseology. Hamas has used that phraseology. Various other Palestinian groups have used that phraseology. And as Mark himself pointed out, uh, after this uh, controversy blew up, it's very similar, his usage of it, to the way in which we in the United States uh, use that phrase from sea to shining sea. It's just all of the territory that we're talking about. It does not imply that, uh, uh, as some said, that they are that he was talking about a free Palestine from the river to the sea, meaning the eradication of all the Jews on that land. He didn't say that. If you listen to the rest of his speech or you look at the transcript of the speech, it's very obvious that he is talking about a piece of land where all should have equal rights, both Jew and non-Jew, Palestinian and Israeli Jew, all should have equal rights and peace and justice. Most of us on the left who criticize Israel, we started out many, many years ago uh, with a belief in a two-state solution, the importance of having a Palestinian state that would be independent. Unfortunately, what has happened since then is that settlers have moved uh, with the encouragement, of course, and subsidy of the Israeli government have come to Israel, uh, many of them the most militant and right wing of Zionists in the world. These are folks who are either ultra religious and believe that they have a biblical claim on the land, or they may not be necessarily ultra religious, but they have this sort of incredibly right wing view of Zionism and the rights of the Jewish people to that land in its entirety, what they refer to as Eretz Yisrael, which is sort of the biblical land of Israel, greater Israel, which includes land, which by the way, biblically includes land uh, that is uh, part of uh, other sovereign nations, including Syria and Egypt. Um, so when they talk about Eretz Yisrael and they talk about the rights of Jews to the land that was promised them in the Bible, I should say promised us because I am Jewish, promised us in the Bible, they're really talking about a biblical claim on land that even Israel doesn't claim yet. So that's another aspect of some of the settlers' mentality in particular. Many of the settlers um, having a, a mentality very much like Merika Hanna, the founder of the Jewish Defense League, and then a far-right party for a while in Israel. He was actually a member of the Knesset for a while. He believed in the open expulsion, even extermination of Arab peoples. And so even though that's not necessarily the majority of Israeli opinion, there is an increasing segment of the Israeli Jewish community that does endorse that kind of thinking, and especially among settlers. So when you start out with a two-state concept. And then the settlers continue to build settlements, continue to build settlements. Israel continues to subsidize and help pay for that resettlement and relocation of Jews from all over the world. And now what has happened 30 years later is what many of us warned about in the 1980s and 90s, which is now Israel has, by virtue of pushing the settlement community into the West Bank, for instance, and taking more and more land from Palestinian peoples and what could have been a Palestinian state, have now created a reality on the ground that makes the two-state solution almost impossible because the geographic location of that Palestinian state would be divided at various places. It would be choked off, its access to water, its access to electricity, be surrounded by hostile forces. Most of those who even ever endorsed the two-state solution always said it should be demilitarized. So apparently they believe Israel should be able to have weaponry and a military, but the Palestinian state should not, which is a whole nother issue about the hypocrisy of that and the hubris of that. But the point is that two-state solution is increasingly 
difficult to make happen because of the realities on the ground that Israel has created by virtue of pushing the notion of settlement. And so now we are in a situation where the only two possible options are an apartheid-like solution where non-Jews will always be treated as second-class citizens in terms of their access to land, their access to resources, their claim on the nation. Uh, And indeed, that is the case not only in the West Bank and Gaza, of course, but in Israel proper, where Jews have favored access uh, to a number of amenities and resources, and non-Jews are treated indeed like second-class citizens. But the only other option is a one-state solution, binational, secular, and democratic, small d, where all Jew and non-Jew are treated equally. And for many, and I think Mark Lamont Hill's probably one of them, that's sort of what we've come to. Two-state solution might have worked 30 years ago, but now it really is increasingly untenable, and that's not the fault of Palestinians. It is the fault of the Netanyahu government and governments before Netanyahu, uh, who allowed and encouraged such a dramatic rise in settlement activity that now the possibility of a viable, separate Palestinian state uh, is almost completely uh, unrealistic. So here we are. And Mark Lamont Hill for calling for that binational secular state, which is really what he was saying when he says a free Palestine from the river to the sea, that's what he's saying. He's saying a nation that is free for all. But unfortunately, when folks hear that in the in the sort of militant pro-Israel and Zionist community, what they hear is Uh, the eradication of Israel. And in one sense, I guess they're right. It would mean the eradication of Israel as we know it, as the state of the Jewish people, by the Jewish people, and for the Jewish people. Mark, you were fired uh, by CNN for a speech you gave about Israel-Palestine at the UN, a speech in which you called on countries to boycott Israel, in which you called for a, quote, free Palestine from the river to the sea, which many say is a Hamas slogan. It's about getting rid of Israel. Looking back now, several weeks later, do you think you crossed a line in terms of your rhetoric on Israel? Would you stand by your comments? Well, I think both are true. I, I, I cross the line in the sense that there is a very narrow framework that we're allowed to use to engage in conversations about the question of Israel and Palestine. And so certainly within the boundaries of civil liberal uh, Western discourse, I, I certainly crossed a line. There were people who felt people, there are people who think one state solutions are crossing the line and talking about uh, free Palestine is crossing the line or talking about human rights violations is, is crossing the line. So to that extent, absolutely. Uh, but do I stand by what I said? Absolutely. <laughs> I think I was right. I, I think I was right to use that day and use that speech to challenge um, the, uh, the question of human rights and raise the question of human rights and to help us reimagine a world uh, of freedom and safety, peace and self-determination for Palestinian people and for 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 citizens of Israel as well. You know, I don't think they have to come at the expense of one another. Uh, were you surprised, uh, shocked even to be sacked as a contributor to CNN or did you see that coming? They were pretty quick about it. I definitely did not see it coming uh, because I wrote a speech that I thought was critical, but certainly honest and fair and empirically supported. Uh, because I had no intention of saying anything violent or anti-Semitic 
or otherwise outside what I think are reasonable boundaries of, 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 of public discourse, I had no expectation. I thought people would disagree with me. Uh, there are many disagreements on this issue. Uh, but I didn't expect to be fired because I don't think that I did anything that was wrong. What did they say was the reason for firing you? I wasn't really given uh, a, a reason other than that the speech uh, didn't um, cohere with their values. It just said that your speech didn't match our value, didn't reflect our values. Um, and that's yeah. When they so their <laughs> values. What's interesting about their values is you got fired for calling for democracy and human rights. Quote between the river and the sea, from the river to the sea. Uh, whereas former Republican Senator Rick Santorum is still employed as a paid contributor, even though he says Palestinians don't exist. It's 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 a it's a striking contrast. You know, uh, the idea that within cable news or any form of public discourse that we can't have disagreements or we don't have a space for an array of opinions to me is troubling. But if we are going to close ranks around certain opinions and not others, I'd like to think that the call for democracy in the region, the call for safety and peace and self-determination, again, for everybody, uh, is, 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 is a reasonable one. And I would think that uh, Rick Santorum's call for uh, or, or his analysis that Palestinians don't exist or many of the other gross things that Rick Santorum has said in public and other people would be outside the boundaries. But in this bizarre world that we live in today, it's the opposite. Yeah, exactly the opposite. And just to be clear for our listeners, there are more than 4 million Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza who cannot vote uh, for the people who basically control their lives, which is the Israeli government. Um, Lara, what did you make of Mark's firing? What did you make of the award that was offered and then rescinded to Angela Davis? Does any of this surprise you? Um, I, I, I wish it surprised me. I've, I've been working this issue for too long, really, to be surprised. I'm old enough to remember Helen Thomas being essentially sacrificed over this issue. The her, late White House correspondent. Yes, her entire legacy as a White House correspondent, um, effectively delegitimized over comments she made about Israel-Palestine. Doesn't surprise me at all. I do think we're seeing an escalation in this. I, I, I think we're at a moment when um, either out of fears that at some point Israel is not going to be able to forever maintain the occupation, deny rights, um, you know, the, maintain the, the status quo and the high ground. So maybe there's a fear that losing um, ground or there's a feeling of this is a moment of opportunity that has to be seized to finally roll back everything that's happened since Oslo and since Madrid and return us to a, a status quo ante where any utterance of support for the Palestinians was equated with anti-Semitism, with support for terror. So, so on that note about any utterance, a lot of supporters of Israel, if they're listening to this discussion, will say that's just not true. Israel's attacked all the time. It's held to unfair double standards. As someone who's worked in this field for a while, as someone who I think it's fair to say would call herself a friend of Israel, a critical friend of Israel, where do you think the line now stands in what you can and can't say about Israel and the occupation of the Palestinian territories. Where is it right now? Look, I, I think that line is moving. And the fact is, we live in a democracy. You can say what you want. The question is, what sort of price are people going to try to exact for your yeah. utterance? On the question of, you know, dual standards, I just want to say this really quick. For years, I mean, I come from a community where there's great sensitivity in the dual standard. Israel is held to a higher standard. Today, when it comes to questions of democracy, of human rights, of free speech, the demand from supporters of Israel from the right is not 
that Israel not be held to a higher standards. The demand is that Israel be held to a lower standard. Yeah. Yeah. What about um, Saudi Arabia? Exactly. What about North Korea? There's the yeah. whataboutism, which says, well, but other people are worse. You know, why aren't you boycotting everything? If you don't boycott everything, then boycotting settlements is a, se- a sign that you're an anti-Semite. And, you know, the question of democracy between the river and the sea you would think that setting aside any weighted language there, because that 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 language itself is is heavily yep. laden um, with historical meaning for a lot of people. But even just the question of is it okay to call for democracy? When people say that's an anti-Semitic call, let's let's examine what they're saying. It's anti-Semitic to say that some people are not having democracy and that they should. That's actually holding Israel to a lower standard. This show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you who've signed up to support the show on Patreon. Each hour-long episode we produce is the result of literally dozens of hours of work. Usually about 30 hours of source material has to be listened to, sifted, curated. I go through multiple rounds of editing and refining of the content before almost all of it is discarded and the final selection is made to produce the show. In short, A lot of effort goes into the production of the show because we care deeply about not just providing good ideas and getting them out into the world, but in finding the best versions of the best ideas we possibly can. Due to this high workload, we end up with a relatively low turnout of the show. You know, we only put out two episodes a week, which means we have less than half the opportunity to bring in ad revenue than if we were doing a live-to-tape, five-days-a-week show. And that's why direct support is so important. So if you get value out of the show and you want to support the work that makes it possible, the most important thing you can do is become a member on Patreon. Members get to listen to an ad-free version of the show, participate each week in a poll that helps decide which topics we're going to cover, and they receive bonus clips and commentary in separate members-only episodes. You can sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash bestofleft. And thanks so much for your support. There's something about the um, the framing of the Israel-Palestine debate that really bugs me. And it seems like a lot of times these conversations come back to this gotcha question, which is, do you or don't you support Israel's right to exist? Right. Mm -hmm. You hear that all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, I just want to say I don't. I don't support Israel's right to exist. And it's nothing personal against Israel. I don't support any state's right to exist. Mm. I don't think that states should have rights. I think rights are for people. I think I don't think that governments have rights. I think governments have responsibilities. And I think that that's a way that we maybe ought to, you know, frame this more often. Yeah, I think anyway, that there's something. I mean, uh, I think there's I think it depends on who you're talking to and what the context is. But I actually think there's a lot to what you're saying and I think you're absolutely right. The governments don't have rights, they have responsibilities and I think you know, also this concept of even in conversations that I have more sympathy towards, like people talk about international law or rights of governments or these things. Like, I mean, Israel, Palestine is a great example of like, that doesn't mean anything. It's power. It's capacity to exist. Israel can exist because it has power. It has nothing to do. I mean, you know, and the Palestinians don't because they don't. And that is, you know, so 
my question is, you know, look, if by do if somebody sincerely means, and some people do, because for obvious historical reasons and you know, ongoing reality of anti-Semitism, what some people mean in a good faith is they mean, do you, you know, do you want people who are Jewish in Israel, Palestine? you know, to have security, to be safe, to be able to participate in democracy, to not be harmed, and to practice sure. the religion. So my question, my answer to all of those things are, of course, a categorical, unequivocal, 100% yes. Just as my answer yeah, to yeah. Palestinians. Say, right. So I, I think, yeah, I, I, I think there's something to it. I think with, you know, with some people, obviously, it's going to be a little bit of a conceptual uh, leap. But I think you're right to identify that this is this is like a serious actual thing and this whole like what about hamas and do you support israel like those are thought stopping clichés that people either uh right. sometimes are pointing to things that are genuine concerns uh or they're just being utterly cynical about i just think if you ask me do do you support the israelis right to exist then i would say yes absolutely right uh, just as I support the Palestinians' right to exist. Right. Do I support the right of the Israeli state as it exists today uh, to continue to exist as it does? Right. Well, no, I don't. And again, right. that's nothing personal. I would say the same about any state that exists anywhere in the world. So right. That's all I wanted to say. No, I think I, I, anyway, I, I, I actually really, I actually really like even just the specific verbiage of Israelis versus Israel in terms of right. I because I think Absolutely. that that's exactly the reframe that that needs to happen the fact is we don't have a right to a state defined as ours and ours alone, where we let others live but not to have full and equal rights. We wouldn't accept that if Christians were to say that they wanted a state all to their own. We don't like it when Muslim fundamentalist nations essentially announce that these are Islamic republics and others have to leave. Jews have certainly been expelled historically from, from such nations in the region before, and it was wrong when they did it. It's wrong for us to create systems that are in any way similar. We wouldn't accept it, nor should we, if the white nationalist community were to say we want a nation with all whites, quote unquote, Aryans, and everyone else has to either leave or be treated as second class citizens. So we can't have a standard for ourselves that is different from the standard we apply to others. Uh, and yet that's what I think people are, are arguing for. Mark Lamont Hill is calling for equity for all. He's calling for freedom and justice for all. And those who are attacking him are defending a system that elevates some above others. Now you can argue with Mark Lamont Hill. You can argue with me and others about whether you believe a one-state binational democratic solution is possible. But whether you believe it is feasible or not, let's just be very clear. What what we're doing now isn't feasible. That's what Mark's saying. It's not feasible for the Palestinians. It's not really feasible for Jews. I mean, the great irony of Israel is that the one place on earth where Jews are probably most at risk, and this is even in a world where we are seeing significant upticks in real anti-Semitism, not, not anti-Israel sentiment, but anti-Semitism against Jews as Jews in Europe, in the United States. We just had the synagogue mass Massacre in Pittsburgh, the growth of neo-Nazi white supremacist activity in the U.S., which is pointing to Jews as the sort of principal, horrible, you know, group of people in the country. In the midst of all that, Israel is still the place where, from a physical perspective, Jews are probably most at risk. So the idea that this thing is working for anybody 
is arguable. Uh, and the fact that Mark Lamont Hill is trying to point that out vis-a-vis the Palestinians certainly should not cost him his job. What's happening with him is part and parcel of a long-standing tradition of shutting down any legitimate criticism of Israel. And I'm here to tell you, the more that you do that, the more you endanger everyone. You don't just endanger Palestinians, you endanger Jews. Because when we come across as a people that are not willing to brook any criticism, and when we come across as a people who stand against exclusive nationalism when white racists do it, we stand against uh, Islamic states uh, that are exclusive and and treat non-Muslims uh, as second-class citizens. We certainly would not support the notion of America or any other nation as a Christian republic. If we're going to take stands against those other forms of exclusivity, religious, cultural, ethnic, or quote-unquote racial, then for us to then say, yeah, but we're different because of Hitler. We're different because of the Holocaust, it's different with us, is disingenuous. People who say that criticizing Israel is anti-Semitic because you're singling us out among all nations on earth, you're singling out Israel, they're full of shit. That's not true at all. Those of us on the left who criticize Israel and want you know divestment from or boycotts against or sanctions against Israel, we say the same thing about Saudi Arabia. We say the same thing about South Africa back in the day. We, you know, we believe in sanctioning and divesting from countries with shitty human rights records, but especially when the United States is implicated. There are lots of countries on the earth that have worse human Human rights records than any given country that you might be criticizing at a particular time. It's, it, you know, there's, there, there's no way probably objectively to say this is the worst and here's number seven and here's number 14. But if you're an American citizen, it makes sense, doesn't it? That your primary concern is going to be those countries that the United States helps to prop up. So in, in, in my opinion, I think, you know, you look for, for my money that, that is Israel and that is Saudi Arabia. Those are the countries that I think we're heavily implicated in economically, militarily, in terms of sharing intelligence intelligence and all these other things. So I think it makes sense to critique them. Just as during the Cold War, those of us on the left spent more time criticizing the United States and our orbit of influence and our allies than we did the Soviet Empire, not because the Soviet Empire was any less horrific, and it wasn't because we believed that our side was more evil, it was because it was our side, right? So if you're an American and the United States is a principal supporter of Israel, then it makes sense that you would focus on that and not necessarily Iran, right, which has a shitty human rights record, but we're not we're not propping that up in the same way. We're not supporting that in the same way. The same would have been true during during the days of the Soviet Union. There were plenty of nations in the Eastern Bloc that were horribly oppressive, but it would have been absurd for us to say, well, let's let's talk about Romania, you know, as much as we talk about El Salvador, or let's talk about East Germany the way that we talk about Chile. It just doesn't make sense. It's not because Chile was worse than East Germany. It's not because El Salvador was necessarily worse than Romania. It's just that you have to use your influence where you can. And so for America, that means criticizing Israel. For those of us who are Jews, we have a special obligation, I think, to be critical of Israel. After all, they say they speak for us. And if and if you're a, a Jew who doesn't want Israel to speak for you or thinks that the speaking they are doing is contrary to your values, then you have an obligation to speak up, not only because that's right for the Palestinian people, but that's better for Jews. You know, it's 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 funny historically and you know those of us who are jewish know this the the way that jews used to come to politics historically in this country and maybe some still do was we would always ask the question what you know is it good for the jews right because when you're a marginalized people that's what you do you think like a marginalized people and that's understandable you think as a group because you know shit could go south like any minute right so it it totally makes sense but the the problem is i don't think we ask that question anymore about zionism is it really good for the jews are jews actually less hated today because of 
of Zionism? Are we less hunted today because of Zionism? And I would argue the answer is no. I'm not suggesting, please do not misunderstand me, that the reason for anti-Semitism is Zionism, that somehow, you know, that we've brought it on ourselves. That's not my argument. Anti-Semitism has existed for a very, very long time, for thousands of years. And even in the absence of Zionism as a political movement, it would exist. But what I'm saying is that it certainly has not helped. And if you have a world in which this hatred of Jews for cultural reasons, for religious reasons, etc., has been a longstanding phenomena, the last thing you want to do, it seems to me, is create an exclusivist mentality that says we have rights above others, we should be privileged above others, we should be able to treat others the way that we do not want to be treated. It seems to me in a world of anti-Semitism, you do not lay that philosophy on top of that world and then act surprised when it comes back at you. This is not healthy for anyone. Which is what I think Mark Lamont Hill would say, and 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 I will, I want to have him back on the show and give him the chance to say that if that's his viewpoint, um, or to clarify what his viewpoints are. But 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 we've got to get to a place where we can engage this conversation honestly. And I say that as an American, I say that as a Jew, I say that as a human being who cares about the well-being of everyone in Palestine, in Israel, in Israel-Palestine, whichever terminology you prefer, maybe. Just maybe we can have an honest discussion without censorship, without charges of self-hate, without charges of anti-Semitism as to what justice is going to require. And if we don't start opening up to that conversation, the future of Palestinians, the future of Jews, the future potentially of the entire world is going to be considerably more grim even than it is today. We've just heard clips today, starting with the Katie Halper Show, speaking with Kareem Estefan about the BDS movement generally. Democracy Now! interviewed Angela Davis about Palestine and her support of BDS. The Real News discussed the effectiveness of BDS as confirmed by a leaked report from a pro-Israel lobby. Counterspin spoke with Josh Rubner about attempts to ban support of BDS. Democracy Now! spoke with Glenn Greenwald about various states and Congress working to ban support of BDS. The Real News talked with Phyllis Bennis about the shifting sentiments and generational divide opening up in the Jewish community on the issue of unquestioningly supporting Israel. Tim Wise, in part one from Speak Out, described the firing of Mark Lamont Hill from CNN and explained the concept of a one-state solution and why it's come to that. Deconstructed had Mark Lamont Hill on to discuss his removal from CNN in person, and Laura Friedman, who answered the question of whether Israel is being held to a different standard from other nations. The Majority Report received a call from a listener who doesn't think that Israel or any other country in the world has the right to exist. And finally, we just heard part two from Tim Wise on Speak Out, explaining that Israel's current status quo is not sustainable and actually endangers Jews in Israel and elsewhere. Members will be getting a bonus episode with additional clips, including an interview with the speech pathologist from Texas we heard mentioned who lost her job for refusing to sign an anti-BDS oath, and two short clips from freshman congresswoman 
Ilhan Omar responding to anti-BDS legislation and accusations of anti-Semitism leveled at her. To hear all of that, to cast a weekly vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for other details about supporting the show by being a patron, visit patreon.com slash bestofleft. You can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. Now, we don't have uh, any voicemails again today, but I do have a couple of bonus clips for you that I think are worth hearing. While doing my research for this episode, as you heard, uh, the main show was mostly what BDS is about and the responses to it, uh, you know, from the anti-BDS side. But uh, during my research, I, I did find two people who are very strong critics of Israel, but who don't sign on 100% you know, both feet straight in to the deep end of BDS, and that's both Noam Chomsky and Norman Finkelstein. So they're both harsh critics of Israel, think that they should be boycotted, thinks that the weight of international pressure needs to be brought upon Israel to get them to change their ways, but they have minor, relatively minor criticisms, uh, not of the tactics, but of the Goal, the stated goals of BDS, the, the official BDS movement, because of how those goals may actually impede their possibility for success. So to get this perspective, I want to play these two clips. This first one is from, it's with Norman Finkelstein. It's from 2012. So just be clear, like what's being said, it, it's possible their views have changed, what we know for sure is that the reality on the ground has changed enormously. We are really at a BDS, Israel, Palestine in general, uh, tipping point recently. I mean, the, the, the conversation is, uh, is at a fever pitch in a way we have never seen before. And so these two clips are, are, uh, from the past when that was not the case, to say the least. So, so this first one, as I said, is from 2012. Your views on a two-state solution and the whole boycott, uh, divestment, sanction movement? Well, I think one of the problems is the question is often incorrectly posed. The question is not what my personal views are. Uh, here, and I, I'm gonna, we're going to return to it in a moment, I agree with Gandhi. You don't start with what your opinion is. You start with where public opinion is at. And the purpose of politics is to try to get people to act on their, on the beliefs they already hold. So I think it's often mistaken when people ask, do you support one state or two states? As if politics were a question about what I support. Politics to me is about the maximum you can hope for in order, you know, trying to reach justice, the maximum you can hope for in a given context. And in our given historical context now, you'd say the limit of the spectrum, the very end of the spectrum, would be, say, human rights organizations. And the limit in the world today is what human rights organizations are saying, what the International Court of Justice is saying, what the UN General Assembly is saying. And there you have a complete consensus, apart from the United States and Israel and some South Sea islands, apart from them, the consensus is clear. It's a two-state settlement on the June 1967 border. 
and a just resolution of the refugee question based on the right of return and compensation. That's the limit of opinion. Do my personal views go beyond that limit? Yes, they do. But politics is not about personal opinions. It's about trying to reach a public and getting them to act on their own sense of right and wrong. And that, to me, is the only place we can go. The problem, as I see it, with the BDS movement is not the tactic. Who could not support boycott, divestment, and sanctions? Of course you should. And most of the human rights organizations, church organizations, have moved in that direction. The problem is the goal. The, human, the official BDS movement, they claim to be agnostic, neutral, uh, whatever term you want to use, on the question of Israel. You can't reach a broad public if you are agnostic on the question of Israel. The broad public wants to know, where do you stand? And if you claim not to have a stand, you lose them. The, the BDS movement, it always says, and I'm using their language, we are a rights-based organization. We are based in international law. I agree with that. That's where you have to go, rights-based international law. But the international law is clear. You read the last sentence of the 2004 International Court of Justice opinion on the wall that Israel has been building in the West Bank. And the last sentence says, we look forward to two states, a Palestinian state alongside Israel and at peace with its neighbors. That's the law. And if you want to go past that law or ignore the Israel part, you'll never reach a broad public. And then it's a cult. Then it's pointless, in my opinion. We're wasting time. And it's only a wasting of time. It becomes, and I know it's a strong word, and I hope I won't be faulted for it, but it becomes historically criminal. Because there was a time where whatever we said, it made no difference. Nobody was listening. You could shout whatever you want. Who cares? But now, actually, we can reach people. There is a possibility. I'm not saying a certainty. I'm not even saying a probability. But there is a possibility that we can reach a broad public. And so we have to be very careful about the words we use, and we have to be very careful about the political strategy we uh, map out. Otherwise, we're going to squander a real opportunity. And I don't want to squander it. You know, I've been at this for 30 years, and I would like to reach that rendezvous of victory. I know it's a little selfish, I know. A little that victory would look like? The victory is what the law says. When Israel packs up its bag and leaves from where it doesn't belong. And now I know we're going to go longer than I usually like to go, but I want to play this second clip, just a few more minutes from Noam Chomsky. And this clip is from 2014. Noam, I wanted to ask you about your recent piece for the nation on Israel, Palestine and BDS. You were critical of the effectiveness of the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. One of the many responses came from Youssef Munir, the executive director of the Jerusalem Fund and its educational program, the Palestine Center. He wrote, quote, Chomsky's criticism of BDS seems to be that it hasn't changed the power dynamic yet and thus that it can't. There's no doubt the road ahead is a long one for BDS, but there's also no doubt the movement is growing. All other paths toward change, including diplomacy and armed struggle, have so far proved ineffective, and some have imposed significant costs on Palestinian life and livelihood. Could you respond? 
Well, actually, I did respond. You can find it on the nation website. But in brief, uh, uh, far from being critical of BDS, I was strongly supportive of it. Uh, one of the oddities of what's called the BDS movement is that they can't, many of the activists just can't see support as support unless it becomes something like almost worship repeat the catechism. Uh, if you take a look at that article, it very strongly supported these tactics. Uh, in fact, I was involved in them and supporting them before the BDS movement even existed. They're the right tactics, but, tact but it should be second nature to activists, and it usually is, that you have to ask yourself when you conduct some tactic when you pursue it, what the effect is going to be on the victims. You don't pursue a tactic because it makes you feel good. You pursue it because it's going, you estimate that it'll help the victims. And you have to make choices. Now, this goes way back. You'll, you know, say back during the Vietnam War, there were debates uh, about whether you should uh, resort to uh, violent tactics, a weatherman-style tactics. You could understand the motivation. People were desperate. But the Vietnamese were strongly opposed, and many of us, me included, were also opposed, uh, not because, you know, the horrors don't justify some strong action, but because the, the consequences would be harm to the victims. The tactics would increase support for the, for the violence, which in fact is what happened. Those questions arise all the time. Unfortunately, the Palestinian solidarity movements have been unusual in their unwillingness to think these things through. That was pointed out recently again by uh, Raja Shahada, the leading figure in, uh, uh, in, lives in Ramallah a long time, supported the founder of Al-Haq, the legal uh, organization, a very significant and powerful figure. He pointed out that the Palestinian leadership has tended to uh, focus on what he called absolutes, absolute justice. This is the absolute justice that we want, and not to pay attention to pragmatic policies. That's been very obvious for decades. It used to drive people like uh, Iqbal Ahmed, a really committed and knowledgeable militant. Uh, it used to drive them crazy. Uh, they just couldn't listen to pragmatic questions, which are what matter for success in a popular movement, a nationalist movement, and the ones who understand that can succeed. So I'm going to go ahead and say the thing that goes without saying. This is obviously a complicated topic. Uh, as was mentioned, thousands of years of anti-Semitism, the Holocaust, the context of the birth of Israel, all of those sorts of things. And, uh, and so I, I, I get that. I respect the history and the importance of it. I'm all about context, as listeners know. And, and on this subject, I, I would say you know, maybe I know more than 90% of the American population on the subject, maybe, you know, give or take, um, especially after this week's really intense deep dive research on the subject. But I would not call myself an expert. So what I'm about to say, I'm, I'm, I'm saying feeling like I'm sort of coming to this situation with fresh eyes to some degree. And um, what I'm wondering, so like based on the clips we just heard, 
What I'm wondering is if uh, the worse things get between Israel and Palestine, the less history matters and the less the specific demands of the BDS movement matter. So both Noam Chomsky and Norman Finkelstein were concerned not about the tactics, but about the specific demands of BDS and that the demands were potentially a turnoff for for people. Uh, Norman Finkelstein like laid it out a little bit more clearly. If you want to get um, Noam Chomsky's answer on it, look up his article in the nation. I mean, as always, he's you know as as dense as ever, and so you really have to read not just his article, but then the responses to it and his responses to the responses to to really get a, a firm grasp of, of where he's coming from. But anyways, I I feel like the worse things get, the less the details matter. And and it's possible that these guys, well-meaning, like uh, their concerns are totally valid, but that they may have uh, overthought it a bit and underestimated how much popular sentiment would change o- over the, you know, the five years or eight years since they said those things they said. And, and so uh, for one of my famous imperfect analogies, uh, this is reminding me of the campaign for Medicare for all. And so in the Obamacare era, we were saying you should demand Medicare for all. And then if you have to negotiate down to the public option, okay, so be it. And then the other side was like, no, 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 only ask for exactly what you think you can actually get. But then, of course, you don't get what you think you could get. You negotiate it away and you end up with something that's better than the old status quo, but is still a giant pile of crap. And uh, so it's the whole like ask for a loaf. Maybe you only get half a loaf ask for the bakery to be nationalized and all its profits to be dispersed to the people, maybe you end up with that full loaf that, that you really wanted. So uh, with with Medicare for All, like that's why I don't just sign on to the demand for Medicare for All now. I didn't come up with this, but I'm happy to sign on to it, that this call for our medical system to not just be Medicare for all, but for the rich to be hunted down and have their organs harvested and redistributed to the poor at no cost. And that's my position. But look, I'm not wedded to it. I'll negotiate from that position. And if you, you know, if if that's a real sticking point for you and you don't want the rich to be hunted down and have their organs harvested, look, I can be flexible and I will, I, I, I will go all the way down to just Medicare for all. And that's how negotiations work. So it's possible that Noman Norman's concerns about BDS and their demands is sort of in the same vein. They were asking for too much. They, they were going to turn people off, but maybe they didn't. And maybe the, the, the changing facts on the ground are making people so angry at the situation in Israel-Palestine, that they don't quite care what the specific demands are, and they're willing to sign on to a boycott against Israel in general to put some pressure, to force some negotiation, and then look, if if we don't get exactly what BDS is calling for, but we get some major improvement, I think everyone would be happy for it and, and, and be happy that they went along with 
the boycott. That, that's where I come from. I don't even have really strong opinions. Like this is, this is me not being an expert and, and coming to it with fresh eyes. I don't have a super strong opinion about these specific demands of BDS. What I know for sure is that Israel needs to have their actions changed. They're not going to do it on their own. They need pressure brought uh, internationally. And the BDS movement is the movement that is heading in that direction. That's the direction I'm heading, and that's the movement that's going there. The details matter less in sort of the same way that, look, a lot of you listening probably wouldn't be in favor of harvesting organs from the rich, but it doesn't mean you then think, oh, well, I can't. I can't advocate for uh, Medicare for all because I heard that guy say he wants to harvest organs from the rich. I'm turned off to the whole situation. That's not really how it works. When a situation gets bad enough, disparate groups with with different different levels of demands or different levels of disgust come together, and that's that's what builds the movement. So I, I think it was worthwhile to hear those guys and their concerns but also consider the possibility that they may have been a little overwrought in their concerns, uh, especially with with the changing tides and changing sentiments and the fact that things in Israel-Palestine just continue to get worse. So those are my thoughts, uh, inexpert as they are. Uh, if you have thoughts on this, which I know some of you do, you can keep the comments coming in at the voicemail line, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.